Hi guys, I want to welcome you to episode 100 of the Revive Stronger podcast. What a journey it has been. I can still remember episode number one in which we interviewed Mike Isretel and James Hoffman and I was with Mike Samuels and never did I think the podcast would take the direction it has and explode in the way it has. And I just want to briefly say a massive thank you to all of you who watch the podcast and support it, share it, tag me on Instagram and enjoy the podcast, asking your questions and things like this. So massive thank you there. And I want to massively thank also all of the guests we've had on the show. There's been numerous experts from Mike Isretel to Brad Schoenfeld, James Krieger, everyone and more to come. I also want to give a very short and special thank you to Pascal Floor, who came onto the Revive Stronger team as a coach, but also edits all the podcasts and makes sure they're of the highest quality of sound and visual. So give him a thank you as well. I also want to have just a quick, quick, quick message to you to keep your eyes peeled for a potential hypertrophy seminar with Jared Feather and Mike Isretel coming in the near future. And also to let you know that we will be starting up a Patreon account um, just as a way so we can have a little bit of potential income and you can support us in keeping out this tremendous content. So there will be links to that below. So without further ado, look forward to listening to three amazing, very, very expert individuals on a very interesting topic. So cheers, guys. Take care and revive stronger. Awesome. So hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, always Steve Hall. And we have a very special roundtable. Hopefully, everything will hold for the podcast. Um, we have Eric Helms, Mike Isretel, and Menno Henselmans with us today. And I'm super excited to have all three of them. I have to give them a massive thank you for being here today um, and bearing with me. So um, without further ado, we'll get straight into it because uh, we have kind of hopefully technology on our side at the moment. And we're going to go into the topic of deloads. And we're going to start with Eric to define what a deload is um, and why they're used for kind of physique competitors um, and we'll, we'll roll from there. So go for it, Eric. Cool. Thanks for having me for sure, Steve. Um, so yeah, in its basic form, a deload is also sometimes called a taper. Um, and that is essentially probably in its most basic form, a period of reduced training stress uh, to allow for the dissipation of fatigue, which typically accumulates faster than the actual performance increases that, that you're getting from training. Um, specifically for a physique competitor, they're not well-defined, at least not in the literature. Uh, you can find a lot of, well, not a lot. You can find new emerging recent research on what is probably a good way to taper for maximal strength, which is essentially a maintenance of uh, intensity and frequency and a reduction in volume, somewhere between one to two thirds of what you're normally doing, uh, or maybe a slight reduction in intensity. Uh, and that's, you, that, depending on how you look at that, that could be a maintenance of load. So like percentage of one RM while dropping the number of reps performed. So the RPE could go down uh, during, during a taper. Um, however, I think that has limited application for a physique athlete. That's probably something you'd want to do before, say, testing your performance to see if you've actually made progress. But since you don't actually care, about whether or not your strength is going up, rather it's just an indicator that you are indeed getting bigger, um, you might want to consider other things, other ways of, of, of reducing training stress. So for example, um, reducing load a little bit as well, as uh, you, you might just want to take some time to, to reduce joint loading. And you don't have a requirement to maintain peak strength levels as you start, say, a, a new mesocycle of training. Uh, so I think it's, it's not clearly defined in the literature what a deload looks like for physique competitors, but uh, broadly, from what we do know of overall the way the body adapts, it's just a period of reduced stress training to allow for the dissipation of physique of fatigue. Brilliant, and um, I think everyone kind of has a good idea of what deloads are in general, kind of when people are thinking about it. But I think it's really good to have that clear definition. I mean, I know you all kind of are along the same thoughts on the definition. I don't think it's really something that's massively up for debate. Um, but I think some of you have, well, all of you, I think, have slightly different uh, ways in which you do periodize. Um, and I'd love to hear Menno's 
um, thoughts on kind of deloads for physique athletes and how you go about kind of implementing them with your clients and yourself? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, my, um, I tend to stick to the literal definition of deloading. So I, I fully agree with Eric here um, on the abstract definition, basically. Um, so I, I say a deload is a period in which you literally reduce training loads. That's how I most commonly define it. So either you don't train at all, so you literally reduce the loads by 100%, or you reduce the training loads and train you know, with uh, submaximal weights. I know there are other ways you can do it, and uh, we could use different terminology for that, but uh, that's the term I would use for the literal uh, meaning of a deload. Um, so the, the typical most concrete deload, um, you know, if some people are still wondering, you know, what does this exactly look like in practice? Um, I would say that the most common thing I see as deloading is probably the um, block periodization where you have three weeks where you accumulate volume and then you take the fourth week off training where it's super low load, very submaximal training, like doing your warm-ups and uh, using weights that are probably too low to induce any further muscle growth or strength development. So that's the application, at least I've seen most often of a deload, like a full week off or very reduced training loads. And uh, my approach is very different to how I recommend deloads for physique athletes. So I, I have, I'm not sure if you want to go into powerlifting and the like as well, but we can do that separately because uh, I use different methods for that. But for physique competitors, I'm, I'm not a fan of just taking a, a whole week off every, you know, X weeks, but rather um, using what I call reactive deloads. So um, my, my beef with the, uh, the full week off for physique competitors is that uh, for one, it's, it's arbitrary. So, you know, you have to decide uh, for which period uh, are you going to take some time off? Well, that's hard because you don't know exactly when someone is going to need the deload. You know, things like stress and sleep can make a huge impact on someone's recovery capacity. So you don't know when someone's partner is going to break up with them and they're going to have a lot more life stress or they're just going to have really bad sleep or, you know, work's going to be more intense, stuff like that. And that can impact their recovery capacity a lot. And maybe they need a deload at that time, but they don't need it when, you know, you've planned it in uh, January and actually they're on holiday and everything's fine and they could actually probably up the training volume. So that's one thing I think um, that an ideal deload should take into account. It shouldn't be arbitrary, but there should be a rationale for when you do it. And a reactive deload, as I typically use them, is that you don't set the deload in advance. So it's not proactive, but it's reactive. So you see when someone's performance isn't as planned, and then you react by reducing the training loads. So if you have a certain program and you expect at a certain time point that they are going to squat um, 140 kilos for eight reps, and you see that they only get four reps, well, that might be an indication that they, are, uh, they have overreached, they haven't recovered yet. So what I then do is I cut the training loads by a large percentage and just have them do speed work. Very simple version would be just skip all remaining sets of that exercise. Two other reasons why I like uh, that form of reactive deloading, so it's exercise specific and uh, reactive rather than proactive, is that, uh, like I said, for one, it's exercise specific. So we know that muscle growth and muscular adaptations and fatigue are largely a local process. So it doesn't make sense that if you're uh, you know, everyone has weak body parts, stronger body parts. For me, for example, I have the elbows and knees of a six-year-old girl. Uh, so they are very prone to uh, being overtrained. And at various time points, I may need to cut down on the volume for uh, arm work, leg extension, squats, that kind of stuff. But I can keep hammering my hips, um, my delts, all year. Like there's basically nothing that seems that I can do to overtrain or uh, damage my hips. Like I've never, ever had any kind of hip problem. I can do high volume, high intensity sumo deadlifts all year. Never going to be a problem. Uh, recovery for my delts just never seems to be an issue. So uh, it makes sense to me that you would um, schedule the deload to be muscle or exercise specific based on uh, individual joint tolerance, muscle groups that recover faster, uh, faster and uh, slower than others based on someone's genetics and maybe other factors. Um, the last factor would be the time course of the deload. So a reactive deload is typically one session, and then maybe there's a specification of what to do the next session. 
So in the, the example of the squat, I typically have them when after a deload, I have them go back in weight one increment. One increment being the smallest amount of weight, typically five pounds or 2.5 kilos. Uh, that's possible with someone's equipment. You guys still there? But yeah, okay. Um, and uh, so the time course is really short. It's basically one microcycle, mesocycle, depending on your terminology, of, um, of reduced training stress. And uh, the reason for that is that I think there's a lot of literature. Um, there's not much literature on deloading specifically, but there is literature on the time course of recovery from certain exercise. And uh, a few studies that come to mind, there was a recent one. It was four sets of bench pressing, pretty high rep work to failure, four sets to failure. And most people recovered within 48 hours with some more on 72 hours. And there's also a study on rugby players that uh, did like a I think, full body protocol pretty intense kind of typical session they would perform in the off season. And it was also most people recovered, I think all of them actually, um, statistically at least, within 72 hours. So I think there's a lot of literature pointing to uh, even pretty extreme kind of protocols will need, you know, maybe five days or so of recovery, but a full week of recovery is, is, a, is a long ass time to actually require your muscles to keep recovering for that whole period. So, that's basically why I recommend, um, don't recommend like the typical uh, kind of Poliquin-esque uh, week off every fourth week, but rather uh, do it reactively for certain exercises when needed. And that's basically how I typically use deloads for PZ competitors. Okay, fantastic. And I think um, for the kind of brevity of this podcast, we'll keep it to physique competitors. And that's really interesting. So reacting specifically to... Uh, certain muscle groups is certainly a, an interesting way to deload. Um, and I know Mike has a probably a different perspective on this. And um, I think I'll open the floor next to Mike if you want to kind of go over, um, maybe address um, Menno's approach and kind of talk about the way you like to do things. And then we can open the floor to maybe Eric and have a thought in, in the middle of those. Cool. Thanks so much. Um, pleasure speaking with such bright young gentlemen. You know, that gives me hope for the world's future that, that, that you folks are, uh, are, are around. And uh, yeah, I'm running for political office, so I'm, uh, I'm practicing my, my politics. How old um, are you, Mike? Say what? How old are you? Hey, what do you think uh, was a hairline test? You know, I'm, I'm 48, oh, 51. Wow. Really? No. Really? <laughs> like seriously? <laughs> How could you believe that, man? That's fucked up. <laughs> um, I'm 33. <laughs> Okay, so I'm actually older than everyone else in this podcast. We'll, we'll just carry on then. Well, well, <laughs> Captain America's grouchy today, folks. <laughs> Aren't you technically like 95 then? Does your time frozen in stasis count? I don't think so. So, All right. which also is a problem with my drug-free status because technically that means <laughs> I took Superstorm not too long ago. That's so. true. That's very true. You got to stretch that out. All right. So, um... I think a lot has been covered and I agree with most of it. Um, I have a couple of things to add. I think that when we look at it from a big picture theoretical view, um, we can talk about just the term active recovery, which is all encompassing and includes three basic kinds of active recovery, one of which the intermediate of which is usually called the deload. Uh, the first is just called a light session or recovery session. And that's what I think Eric and Menno are, are um, more apt to doing more of which is when your performance uh, starts to dip down, then you take one to several lighter sessions. Uh, and, and the light session is, uh, unfortunately, we actually like to call it a recovery session at RP because light session indicates that the load is always manipulated. That's not always the case. Um, as Eric mentioned, sometimes it's the volume. Uh, I think, I think it's, it's pretty clear that volume is the predominant uh, cause of fatigue and the uh, reducing volume is the predominant way to alleviate fatigue. You can still actually train with higher loads for most kinds of fatigue. I'll get to what I mean by that in just a bit. But basically, you make training fundamentally easier um, for several uh, for a session to several sessions that allows you to recover enough to continue to provide overload sequentially over the next several days and or weeks until you have to repeat the process again. So that's uh, session level uh, active recovery. Then there is a microcycle level active recovery phase, which is typically called the deload. That's when you take a reduced volume and intensity for an entire microcycle, which is typically a week. Um, and then you come back and usually restart a new mesocycle after that, oftentimes changing some sorts of variables, 
in your block periodized scheme, maybe rep range or exercise selection, or, or you keep everything the same, but you recycle the load somewhat, just get a little bit further away from uh, RIR uh, to basically increase your repetitions and reserve to start uh, working your way towards uh, higher relative intensities again. And the deload does a little bit something more special, a little bit different qualitatively than simply taking light sessions in sequence, particularly with structures that require, or systems that require longer times to heal. For example, the nervous system and more particularly joint structures do not simply heal after several sessions. And uh, with joint structures in particular, I'll get this in just a bit, um, they can oftentimes be relatively asymptomatic until it's not so much too late, but until they're a real big problem. So um, that's the deload does something a little bit qualitatively more than simply taking a couple of days uh, easy with active recovery sessions. Lastly, um, is the uh, an entire phase right of active recovery uh, or what's called the active rest phase, and that's often done with very high level athletes who train more or less uh, through the seasonal cycles. So like a soccer player will play a really brutal season. After the season, you basically sequence anywhere between two and four deload uh, blocks or deload weeks, um, one after another, to really fundamentally bring down a ton of joint fatigue, nervous system fatigue, and a lot of psychological fatigue that just takes longer than a week to get back. So all of these things are part, I think, at some point of most intelligent programs. Um, and what I'll say is they all have their merits and demerits and all are situationally uh, a better or worse idea compared to the other, uh, the other two. I think that the auto-regulation versus pre-planned debate um, is more of a, there's a place for both things. I think auto-regulatory or, um, uh, Mena, what was your term for it? Reactive, right? Uh, reactive deloading, I think is highly intelligent. It should be a part of almost every single, if not every single program. I think there are some uh, slight exemptions to that, like with just raw beginners, they have no idea what's going on, so I'm not really interested in how they feel. Um, but, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm tired, whatever, shut up, here's a program. But uh, I think auto-regulation, especially for high-level athletes, become very important. But there is something to say for pre-planned um, and modifiable, like you, you will take a deal a week at some point. It may be as you're accumulating fatigue, you average a four-week accumulation phase with one week of deload. But at week four, if you're still feeling pretty good, you can take a fifth week, but then you need a deload after the sixth and a full week of, of less intense, less voluminous activity. One of the biggest reasons I think this is a necessity is because some systems, like I mentioned earlier, simply take longer to recover than your perception of effort and your ability to acutely exert effort. For example, if your joints are getting beat up literally in the sense that they're getting degraded and they're behind on the, on the repertory processes, um, you may, you know, not feel really much until you have actual microtrauma. And uh, if you just do uh, sort of reactive deloading or you do uh, just a couple of light sessions, your muscles heal relatively quickly, much faster than your joint structures do. And uh, you'll just feel, you, you know, you can replete glycogen in a couple of sessions really well. You're going to have baller workouts. You're going to be like, shit, I'm back. You'll be just strong enough after being back if you keep doing that and never take a longer deload to get yourself really hurt with your joints. And once your joints start hurting, you're in real deep shit and you might need an entire active rest phase to heal everything, if not worse. Now, it's not always this bad, but generally speaking, I think every now and again, not nearly as often, I, I don't like the three to one paradigm much for physique athletes. I think that's ridiculous. I think for power lifters that weigh 315 pounds and are lifting with equipment, for example, that are lifting 110% of the 1RM, yeah, three to one paradigm is a monster and they do need a, an easy week after that. But I think physique athletes, especially training raw, especially training drug-free, um, I think they can train for four to six weeks, no problem, without the need for a true deload and with auto-regulation, maybe even longer. But I think a week at the end of that might be a very good idea just to really just take all the burners off, really level the playing field, allow joint reconstitution, especially maybe some things about the nervous system, maybe a little bit of testosterone and cortisol kind of stuff. Although with Permeno's latest article, that's not looking as convincing as it once did. Um, but, but really bringing everything down, really bringing fatigue down in a big way, especially in the ways we can't detect just through performance. And then you have more or less a clean slate to start ramping back up while auto-regulating over a longer term. And I think at least once a year, most individuals should take the equivalent of an active rest phase. 
for physique purposes, I think two weeks is more than sufficient for almost everybody. Higher level, older individuals like John Meadows, for example, are known for taking like a month of active rest after the competition season every year. But like when you're 45 years old and you've been doing this since you were 12, you're going to need that shit. So not to fall apart like Mr. Potato Head, um, but um, we definitely don't want to push the idea that everyone needs a month off once a year. And I think also uh, something that uh, a lot of personal trainers have brought to my attention, like when you have regular clients that are sort of physique-ish but aren't competitors, they'll active rest by their damn selves by accident. So you don't have to program that shit in. You're like, hey, good news, active rest coming up in January. And they're like, oh, good, you know, I'm traveling in Europe all of January anyway. And you're like, well, fuck, I guess just I can do that shit without me, man. Take me with you to Europe, please. I want to see the, the Eiffel Tower. I, I never have. So um, so in any case, uh, you know, th those are kind of my views. So I think auto-regulation uh, is central to fatigue management. But I think some pre-planned fatigue management on the longer terms, multiple mesocycles especially, uh, and every macrocycle or so, I think we have to really take a backseat, take a longer uh, lower volume, low intensity phase, especially for joint issues, uh, deeper nervous system issues, um, and uh, the uh, accumulation of various uh, hormones, etc. Sorry for rambling. No, nice. Brilliant. Um, I think that was a really good and we can segue to Eric, who um, hasn't spoken for some time. So I'm sure you've got some comments to make on both Menno and uh, Mike's uh, statements there. Yeah, it's just it's painful to listen to these two guys talk for so long, but um, but it's happened and we're here and, you know, we're not better for it, but I'm going to try to recover that a little bit. Um, no, no, overall, I agree with with both these guys. I think I'll address Menno first because he first uh, spoke. I, 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 in, in some ways, I agree with Menno. In some ways, I, I don't. I think um, for one, while hypertrophy and the adaptation that we're trying to get for physique athletes getting bigger is a local process. Uh, be just because the adaptation is local doesn't mean the training only affects local systems. The training we do to grow is affecting the entire complex system. So I, in that way, I agree with Mike that you need to look at the bigger picture in terms of recovery and that there might be joint uh, nervous system and probably more importantly, just psychological issues. Uh, I think a really good, read for anyone listening is some of the periodization reviews written by John Keeley. Uh, John Keeley is a, a theorist who I really like because he always just comes in every five years and just kicks everyone in the ass and says, you're so dumb. You know, you, everything you're based on is based on, you know, stuff that we discarded in real science in the fifties, you know, basically. Um, and he discusses how we often look at uh, stress and adaptation as these kind of very binary things. You input X and then if you get a certain amount of recovery, you get why. And reality is much more complex than that. It's our perception of it and everything else in our life. Uh, like, like Mano said, your partner breaks up with you and that's going to affect, uh, you know, how you recover from training. And it's, uh, while it's nice to be able to program a certain amount of training load and then go, right, we need X amount of recovery and that should sort it. It just never plays out that way in real life. Um, so in that way, I, I agree with Mano that you do need a reactive or an auto-regulated approach to, to recovery from training. However, uh, as a practitioner and an educator, I have a different approach to what I tell people. If I'm going to put something in a book that is going to be mass consumed by you know, 10,000 plus people who I don't have an active hand in modifying the training, you better believe I'm going to tell them they need to do planned deloads because especially the, the cultural uh, way that we operate as bodybuilders is typically, even when we might say more is not better, we operate with kind of that intrinsic core belief that if I could just work harder, I'd be better. And by the way, I also kind of like pain a little bit and I'm a little crazy and I just want to really, I just want to go hard and go home. I don't, I don't care what all the science I'm saying. I just want to go hard and go home. That's basically what's really going on in kind of like the reptile brain of most bodybuilders. So that means that when I write a book or if I'm talking on a podcast, I'm going to say, you know, it's probably not a bad idea if you don't have a coach who's overseeing your training to take regularly planned deloads. Now, that said, when I'm actually working with an athlete directly, I pencil in deloads based on where I think they should need it based on the program I've written. And then it gets modified quite frequently um, because just like, like Mano said, you know, stuff happens. People break up with you. You get in traffic, you know. You, you learn that a political candidate got elected who you don't like, you know, you need to find, you know, a safe space, all, all kinds of things can, can, can destroy your ability to adapt to training. So 
Um, so it's, it's, I think it's, it's important to be able to modify them as a coach. Uh, I think it's also important to realize that your deload strategy should be related to your training strategy. And, uh, one thing that we, I don't think was well addressed was that we're a lot of, a lot of what we're talking about is recovery from what just happened. And I think a lot of the times what we need to also be thinking about is preparation for what's to come. Um, so while it is true that you, you might recover your performance acutely in 24, 48, 72 or 96 hours, if you're going into a higher volume mesocycle, you need to prepare yourself for that. And if you just jump in right out of the gates in week one and start doing high volume, you're going to accumulate so much damage uh, to, to prevent your ability to adapt and perform uh, on that newer high volume or higher intensity uh, or just higher overload is probably a better way to generalize it program. So I think a deload between mesocycles is also quite useful and that you can use it as a preparatory period to get elicit the repeated bout effects so you can handle the higher levels of training volume and intensity and overload that's coming in the new mesocycle. And I would also finally say, the last thing I wanna add is that your ability to recover changes for depending on the quality you're talking about, even in performance. So there was a study by uh, Faria that came out just last year that showed in response to a high volume resistance training program, strength came back earlier before your ability to produce volume. So a single isolated AMRAP is not necessarily uh, predictive of your overall ability to produce work, which I think is a pretty important thing for, for a bodybuilder, obviously. So, and that may be different if you had done a fatiguing high intensity protocol and then to see what, what performance came back. So there's a lot of multiple, there's, there's a lot of things going on at the same time, different performance recovers at different rates. Not only do deloads uh, help you recover from what just occurred, but can help you to prepare what we call an intro cycle for the next mesocycle. And finally, I would agree there is a time and a place for a planned or penciled in auto-regulated deload. And it really depends on who you're talking to. And I think it's important to, to realize that if you don't have a coach, you really shouldn't trust yourself unless you're a pretty damn experienced lifter. Brilliant. Um, I don't know if Menno, you have any kind of comments to make back to these two guys? Sure, yeah. Um, I think both have very reasonable perspectives. Um, I'd like to go deeper into um, the, the different structures and systems that may require different time courses of recovery. Um, because I think we all agree that muscle tissue adapts quite rapidly. It's very plastic. Uh, and it's, it's rarely the limiting factor for a deload, especially if you're talking about a time course of uh, a week or longer, that the muscle tissue is really the limiting factor. Um, as for different uh, systems having a different time course, um, I can definitely agree with that on uh, connective tissue, joints, ligaments, uh, maybe even bone, uh, tendons. Tendons are well uh, known to uh, have quite poor recovery, especially when there is damage. It's actually debatable uh, if uh, tendon tissue can recover fully when uh, a significant amount of damage has occurred, but it, when it ever really fully recovers. Uh, as for the nervous system, though, uh, I think... Uh, that won't be an issue, like I wrote a recent article on that, that Mike also uh, referenced, uh, where I show that uh, central ner nervous system fatigue, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, often bandied about as a term, but uh, in the research we have, it's actually shown that uh, it's mostly an acute effect, and uh, over time, there may actually be upregulation. So it seems to be that any central nervous system fatigue that occurs is, is largely within that workout, and... Um, Within the time course, it literally, there was one study that looked at the time course and it was like 20 minutes before it was gone. So you're not talking about hours, days, or weeks, you're literally talking about minutes. You know, it's, it's very possible because there is one study, I think, uh, that showed a longer uh, time course of central nervous system fatigue, but that was with eccentric only exercise, which uh, in that study induced um, probably a huge amount of muscle damage. And then there was still on one measure of the several measures of central nervous system fatigue, uh, still central fatigue, uh, 24 hours, uh, but not on the other measures. So maybe that some aspects of the nervous system can take longer to recover from, but even in that case, I think the extent of muscle damage and local fatigue will be so much more severe than central fatigue that I'm very skeptical of the idea that there is any, uh, at least that the central nervous system uh, will require a longer time course of recovery than muscle tissue. Uh, joints and ligaments, uh, I can definitely agree with. The literature on that isn't very clear. Like there, to my knowledge, there isn't any good literature showing that 
um, for my given workout, tendon tissue has a longer time course of recovery than muscle tissue, for example. But uh, it's definitely my experience that you can sort of accumulate an injury silently, and at some point it reaches a certain level. This iceberg theory is quite popular in physiotherapy, which says that basically uh, tissue damage can occur, and it's only at a certain extent that it will actually start triggering your pain receptors. So you don't know uh, whether you have damaged the tissue unless it is triggers a pain receptor, loci receptor. So um, you can accumulate a certain injury, basically, or you know at least some tissue damage in a tendon or something before you actually feel it. So in that sense, I, I agree that there may be a rationale for it. However, my experience is that um, overuse injuries, when technique is good in a program and volume is reasonable, accumulates slowly. Like it's very, very rare that you just have boom, snap. That's your back gone. You know that's deadlifts with a round back, but again, it's it's technique with most exercise is just incredibly rare. I've had it once. My sacroiliac joint literally just popped during a squat. Like good, good technique. Nobody, nobody even saw anything. Was just like, boom, couldn't couldn't move anymore. Couldn't walk. Uh, couldn't do anything. Just literally couldn't move. So, uh, but it's incredibly, incredibly rare in my experience. And usually you you see it coming. Like it, it becomes an ache or stiffness or just a, a nagging kind of uh, sensation. Or you know when you get out of bed, it's like. You, you don't really feel as uh, as flexible anymore. And when you pay attention to those signs, then you can still react to that, switch up exercises. Um, often that has my preference uh, over uh, deloading in this case for injury management, switching exercises, uh, increasing the repetitions, slowing down the tempo. These are ways that you still stimulate the muscle tissue very effectively, but greatly reduce stress on the connective tissue. So that's how I typically like to manage injuries. Uh, mind you, then the focus with my clients often is on maximum progression. So, you know, if someone has a more laid back approach, uh, then it might be more reasonable to just say, okay, just, you know what, just take the time off. We don't need to maximize every single session uh, of uh, time. But with my clients, I typically aim for maximum progression, uh, especially competitors. And then I prefer using these other strategies to manage connective tissue um, uh, or possible but connective tissue injuries and then again do it very specifically because like i said for me uh, but many people they have certain body parts that are very susceptible to connective tissue injuries the other body parts that are definitely not and certain exercises are almost universally well tolerated for example uh, most hip extension movements uh, in people that don't have very weak hips tend to be very very rare to cause damage whereas uh, other exercises are simply very susceptible to induce damage. Notorious bonds are anything behind the neck, dips. Uh, basically, all three of the power lifts are quite susceptible to um, result in uh, injuries at some point, as long as you push the volume up high enough for long enough. Uh, but other exercises, like um, if someone doesn't have uh, injury-prone shoulders, you know, simple lateral raises, dumbbell lateral raises, rarely result in injury. So I think it's also... Um, you, know, you have to decide basically uh, what your risk tolerance is in that regard and if you want to uh, proactively take a week off or uh, try to manage it more acutely and you know try to keep pushing but realizing that you are taking some risk when you do this awesome um and i don't know if you guys are happy that we've kind of covered the training aspect there or if i don't know if mike's got any comments to make on on what uh, Menno's just said there, or if you guys are happy to talk about potentially going into the nutritional aspect of deloading? Um, I'd like one comment. Go for it. If that's okay. Um, so there is a potential problem that I see, and I've witnessed it myself numerous times, a theoretical problem that ends up becoming practical with uh, the consistent employment of exclusively auto-regulation based on performance to continue to progress. So taking uh, one or two light sessions, maybe half a week, and then coming back and hitting it again and doing that. Uh, to, to use my um, pedantic nomenclature, uh, maximum recoverable volume, right? I think we're all kind of familiar with what that is at this point. This is just the most volume your, your physiology can handle before it can't recover anymore. I think what a lot of times end up happening is the reason that we need an autoregulatory uh, reduction is that we exceed our body's maximum ability to recover temporarily. And then we need to bring back the training loads to some extent 
um, training stimulus in order to recover. What that ends up doing in many cases, especially for individuals that are relatively high level, is it brings them just back under their maximum recoverable volume and buys them like another several sessions perhaps of accumulation, productive overloading training until they're back in that danger zone again and they need to go backwards. What that results in if it goes too far is a poor ratio of accumulation to deloading, which is essentially the ratio of your stimulative overloading training versus your recovery time can get as close as one to one. Um, and that's not really that good. So I think there is some argument there for every now and again, um, bringing back the training volume for a longer time, maybe a week, really reducing fatigue to get yourself back into a position where you can uh, go much longer. You can buy yourself more time of productive overload accumulation weeks instead of days so that you can consistently train and, and your accumulation to deload ratio ends up better if you just take some good time uh, at the lower end of things, kind of invest a good time. It's almost like if I was to make an analogy, it would be like, you know, if you are working on a really big research project and you have like a week to finish it, if you only take like a 30 minute break here and there, you buy yourself just enough time and sanity to work for another hour maybe. And then you're after an hour, you're sort of fucking have no idea what your name is and you need another 30 minute break. It ends up being like, you know, a two to one ratio of work to rest. But if you were to simply take an entire day of leisurely running around holding your lover's hands through the meadows um, of Morocco, perhaps, um, then you may actually buy yourself four baller-ass consistent days of grinding brutal work. That's a better ratio. That's four to one. And um, I think it pays off in the end. Now, of course, this can be taken too far. But I think within reason, there's some argument for that. And we can use reps in reserve as, as a really just a simple illustration of that. So if you're like one rep in the tank and then you take a couple of light sessions, you get back to two reps in the tank. Within several overloading sessions, you're back to one rep in the tank again or zero reps and it, you kind of have to just bring it down again. But if you go all the way down, bring enough fatigue to where you're four reps in the tank, it's going to take weeks to get back up with successive overloads to get to one rep in the tank again so it buys you more training time. So that I think that... Um, uh, and I'm actually not saying that either one of these two guys are, are, are fans of that uh, uh, method of doing things, but I think some individuals I've seen kind of, uh, and, and to sort of take a page from Eric's book, you know, the go hard or go home combines with an abuse of autoregulation where they're like, wait a minute, I could just autoregulate everything. So I'm going to smash my shit into fucking millions of pieces, take a light session or two, be just good enough to survive another smashing. And then I'm going to take my dick out, hit it with a hammer, you know, good old fashioned barbell training, just like grandpa used to do. Um, and then what ends up happening is they never, um, I never mind the fact that I think they're risking long-term injury and, and all the other bad stuff from fatigue accumulation because they're always chronically in an almost overreach state. I don't think it's good to hang out around your MRV for a long time, but if nothing else, they're just not getting the overload, the, the accumulation to deload ratios that they could be. Um, and, and that's not, and it literally is not, I just, uh, I guess more for the listener, because I'm not saying either one of the, the other folks advocate this. I just have seen this approach. You know, we've all seen like the standard abuse of the, the deload thing is like when a client feels fucking incredible, let's say they're female and a relative, like an intermediate, they could do eight weeks of accumulation before ever needing a deload. And the coach is like three to one, baby, you got a week off. And they're like a week off for what? I don't feel shit. They're like, nope, you got to do it. Cause otherwise you're breaking half. On the other hand, right, that's the abuse of pre-planned strategies. The abuse of auto-regulation can sometimes be that buying yourself just another session to barely, like, uh, stay alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can I make one quick comment there? I, I fully agree with that. I think that is also something I observe uh, routinely in practice that um, I think it is, what I'd say, though, is it is key to separate injury management and the need for muscular deloading. So uh, I definitely agree that you don't just want to use the deloads uh, like short-term reactive deloading uh, for injury management. Because if you notice that you're on a tip, a certain volume of bench pressing and that, that volume is, is leading to an injury slowly over time. And then you take one deload session and then you're, you're good to go for a few sessions, but you know that that volume is causing an injury. So unless, you know, something changes in your lifestyle that improves your recovery capacity, it's going to lead to another injury. And I see that very often in people uh, that 
indeed, if you just do like one deload, that is not sufficient for injury prevention. So you, I think you really need to um, take a different method there. And one method could be that you have blocks. I think this is especially suitable for powerlifters because they have no choice, right? They will need to train the powerlifts and they will need to use high intensities, basically. So uh, they don't have much of a choice. And then I think deloading is very reasonable. Uh, but for bodybuilders, um, you can just change exercise or you may um, determine that that volume is just too much for that body part, maybe even including the muscles. So in my experience, purely anecdotal, because I don't think there is research directly on this, but it is very strongly my experience with my clients and myself that within certain body parts, the strength of the connective tissue correlates quite strongly with uh, muscular adaptive potential. So typically, you see that if someone has really strong elbows that never get injured, they probably have good arms, as in size and or potential for size at least. And they probably also uh, can train their arms with quite a high volume. Whereas if you see that someone like me has really shitty elbows that are very easy to injure, then they probably also don't want to train their arms with much volume, even if they can do so without getting injured. Again, purely my observation, not based on research, but um, I, I think there is definitely something there. We do know that uh, frame size, which is you know also uh, joint size, but often measured via uh, wrist circumference or ankle circumference, more practically, uh, correlates with muscular potential. So I think there is something there, that uh, there is a relation between muscular potential, uh, resistance to injury, and uh, volume tolerance for, for the muscles as well as the uh, connective tissue. Fantastic. Has anyone got any statements to make after Menos there? No? Happy? Awesome. Um, really, really interesting discussion and fantastic. I think the listeners will love that. And I think we've covered off the training aspect really, really well. And how's everyone doing for time? You're all okay? Good to go, man. Awesome. Um, we're going to open the floor to nutrition then, uh, because obviously we've talked about training and a big part of our recovery and fatigue management is the nutrition that we're going to um, take within our bodies. So I don't know if who wants to kind of talk about nutrition. First of all, if Eric hasn't spoken for some time, so we'll start off with Eric. How do you like to approach kind of nutrition within your deload? Um, yeah, go for it. Well, I think um, I probably should have done a better job defining what actually the deload looks like. So this makes sense. Like, um, while Mike definitely said like a three to one ratio of, of training to work is not a good idea, or sorry, training to, to deloading is not a good idea. I think it also depends on what that deload looks like. Like if you read muscle and strength pyramids, I often have three buildup weeks and then one light week, but the light week is like one less set and you're still working in a, a similar RPE range. I would actually argue that there's probably still some adaptive stimulus there. It's more of kind of a, just in case, because you're probably going higher than the RPEs, I even have programmed for you. Um, conservative approach of allowing it. It's not like taking a week off. Um, and so, so anyway, I typically don't alter nutrition very much at all during a deload phase. Um, for one, the caloric expenditure of weight training is very low. And you're probably burning more on a day where you went grocery shopping and didn't work out than a day where you didn't go grocery shopping and lifted weights unless you just did something that bodybuilders aren't doing or shouldn't be doing. Um, so from just a pure energy balance perspective, I think sometimes trying to uh, match your surplus level to your daily activity changes is an exercise in futility. Uh, you don't actually know what it is. Uh, and it's probably just more realistic, in my opinion, just to look at kind of longer term uh, changes in, in, in body mass anyway. So, you know, one to two pounds a month, depending on your training age. And you can listen to the other uh, debate between good and evil that's going to come out soon that Abel hosted for hearing myself and Mike argue about how to bulk. Um, but anyway, uh, so since we're chasing a small surplus, if we're talking about drug-free physique athletes uh, who are relatively experienced, which they should be if they're a physique athlete. And if we're looking at a deload where the energy expenditure is talking maybe 50 calories different from a day where you're doing a couple additional sets. And there is some adaptive stimulus, even though it's quite low uh, or at least maintenance, I don't have any issue with just keeping nutrition exactly the same. But 
I can completely understand if someone has a different training paradigm, uh, that that would be altered. And just to check, Eric, that's the same if you're in a bulk cut, whatever you're doing, you just keep it level through that deload week. You know, it, it, cuts are interesting because I might have someone, the biggest source of stress during a contest prep diet is not training. It is all the effects of the diet itself and all the things that occur, loss of body fat, the, the energy deficit, et cetera. Um, so while I might give someone a diet break where they're, they're taking one to two weeks on uh, maintenance calories or close to it, during that period, they can also handle a higher training stress. So I'm typically giving them a higher voluminous block of training, or, or I should say microcycle or two of, of training during a, um, during a diet break or allowing them to really, you know, go for it if they want in the gym in terms of loads, unless they are super beat up. And then sometimes I will concurrently program a light week of training along with a diet break. Uh, but if I'm doing my job and typically that, that doesn't happen in the first place, um, but you don't always have, I don't get to, you know, live life with my clients. Sometimes they'll come to me and tell me they've been doing some crazy shit and then a family member died or something like that or whatever. And then that may necessitate that call. But um, yeah, I, I would just say that during a diet, um, training is not the thing that is most stressful. And typically, um, even though training is very important, I don't think it's an interesting paradigm. During a diet, a lot of people drop volume. The rationale is that your, your recovery capacities are lower. So you can't recover from the same amount of volume. Paradoxically, at the same time, you also need the volume to maintain your muscle mass. So I think the amount of stimulus you need to grow has not changed when you're dieting. However, you just can't recover from it. So you kind of have to play that, that game carefully. Typically what I do is I reduce volume as needed, especially from the most uh, stressful movements. So a great way to do is drop a set off squats or deadlifts or something like that, or your, your, your surrogate movements for those uh, versus just dropping volume across the board. And I do it a little more reactively when I'm coaching. Uh, again, if you listen to me talking in the Shredded by Science Academy, or if you listen to me read my books, I talk about like a 10% reduction every 12 weeks or something like that in volume. Um, but, but again, that's because I'm writing it for people and I don't have an active hand in manipulating their, their training. Um, and I think deloads are probably more important during contest prep because uh, it's, well, let me, if I can state this again, I think taking too reductionist of a look at recovery and deloads is probably a mistake. We have to look more holistically at how the person is feeling and how burnt out they are from training. And they're gonna be generally more burnt out and they have to psych themselves up more to perform at the same level during prep as they might in the off season. So just telling them, hey, this, this week, don't worry too much about the loads. Let's just get it in. So long as you're in the ballpark of X, Y, and Z, like we already talked about, that can be a, a great source of a uh, reduction of stress overall. I remember driving and listening to loud music for 20 minutes just to get ready to do like four sets of squats sometimes in contest prep. And then on in the off season, I get to the gym and I, I look at my phone to figure out what I programmed. Like, oh, I got squats. So it's a very different mentality the whole day um, uh, and, and throughout the whole prep. So I think deloads are sometimes more effective in prep, even though uh, the training stress is not providing the primary stress. It's just because everything's a little more stressful. So I kind of got way off base there and probably took up more time than needed and didn't really answer your question. But overall, I don't manipulate nutrition much during your deload. Thank you. No, perfect. And um, I think I'll, I'll move over to Mike um, to have some comments on that or, or how you structure nutrition over a deload story. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it's wise to bring this up currently. And Steve, if you don't want this discussion here, that uh, perfectly understandable. Uh, so just let me know if this is not something you want to engage in uh, and we can just uh, table it for another time. There seems to be this general aura in the evidence-based community that when you are um, cutting, that you are supposed to maintain intensity at the expense of volume. You're supposed to try to still lift as heavy as possible while dropping volume uh, considerably. To me, this goes against the main thrust of the literature, especially of late, that volume is the most causative and correlative uh, measure to hypertrophy. And um, also you need quite a bit more fatigue dissolution to occur to hit your best intensities, but not nearly as much to occur to just put the volume in. 
Um, and I think that uh, it seems that the higher your intensity is uh, per unit of volume, the less volume you can actually do. So if you're trying to grind 85 percenters, you might as well back down and grind 65 percenters instead, and you'll just get more volume for the same amount of fatigue. This makes at least as much sense during cutting as it does during massing. Um, and, and I always get this pushback from the evidence-based, not the people um, in, the, in the limelight so much, uh, as opposed, well, I guess Lyle, but Lyle doesn't speak to me. He's got me blocked. I, I'm not the only one, my God. Um, so I think this is like this trickling down from maybe Lyle's circle or something in which every time I post sets of 12 on a cut, people are like, why don't you just do sets of six to conserve muscle better? I don't think there's anything in the literature that says athletes while cutting should be propping up their intensities at the expense of their volumes. As a matter of fact, I think the only reference I've ever seen is that in basically a taper paradigm situation, maintaining intensity maintains muscle uh, in an isocaloric or eucaloric state, not in a hypocaloric state and not in physique athletes. So um, do, you, do you guys want to tackle that at all? Or, or, or um, is that just not the time or the place? I'll claim a little bit of responsibility for that because back in like 2010, 2011, 3DMJ kind of said, hey, you know, like we, we think tension is the main stimulus and, you know, you, you can't perform as much and volume is more fatiguing. So drop it back and just keep your loads the same. Um, but that is something we, we, we reversed our position on uh, for the exact reasons you mentioned as, as the, the role of volume became more clear. Um, I think a good paradigm to look at it is that the load on the bar is indicative of whether or not you are successful in growing, but the total work you're doing is probably what's causing it. And I think that that wasn't as clear of a position, you know, five, six years ago. So for I'll take sure. some responsibility for that. The rest I'm going to blame on Lyle. Um, and I, Lyle does talk to me and that's your fault, Lyle, <laughs> talking to you, buddy. So, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I would, I would largely agree with, with everything that Mike just said. Cool. That was easy. Shit. I thought this was going to come to blows, Eric. I was going to be like, what? I'm going to, where's the next flight to New Zealand? Because I'm getting out of that plane. They'll ask me at the customs, they're like, what is your purpose for New Zealand? I'm like, I'm here to fist fight. And they're like, oi, man, that's cool. And I, that was an Australian accent. Whatever. It's all the same. Anyway. <laughs> was, it? was that an Australian accent? Oi, man. Fuck off, cat. <laughs> Tell me that's wrong. Tell me that's not Australian. Uh, I'm just going to let the Australians respond in the comments of this right. video. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, okay. So, uh, sorry, real quick. Actually, my position is very, very short on uh, nutrition and deloading. Um, I think it has to reflect the goal of the phase to some extent, but I think fundamentally the safest bet for nutrition during a deload is right around isocaloric. If you are very, let's just use extremes, if you're very hypercaloric during a deload, you've brought down the stimulus for adaptation, you've brought down your energy expenditure. What the fuck are you smashing 7,000 calories a day for? Where's that shit going? Recovery is not like a linear process where the more food you eat, the more recovered you are. Then like the world's fattest man would be recovered as hell. That would be sweet. Like he can hit a thousand pound squat for 10 any day because he just eats so much. But that's just not how it works. So past you, there was a very asymptotic relationship. Actually, Steve, one of your graphics illustrates this really well that you had an Instagram where it's like recovery versus excess calories and it kind of slopes off at some point, right? So uh, isocalorics are really good bet. Broderick Chavez has a good idea that in the first couple of days of that deload microcycle, you still have a lot of muscle growth going on, a lot of trauma from your last peak microcycle. So you might go in a slightly hypercaloric in those few days, but after that, bring it down. On the other hand, this is a really, really big point. When you are dieting, the purpose of a deload is to drop fatigue. If you are still to the extent that you are hypocaloric, you have taken your best weapon of fighting fatigue next to sleep and relaxation and just removed it altogether. So if the purpose of the deload is to drop a fatigue, you had better not be at least very hypocaloric. Some level maybe, my safe bet is to just be isocaloric at, it, at the maintenance level of calories during the deload to make sure that you have the support system to actually drop. What I've seen with a lot of competitors that I, I used to coach more back in the day, competitors and just regular people cutting, they'll be like, all right, I did my deload. And I'm like, did you up your calories just a bit to stay in maintenance? They're like, no, I dieted all the way through that shit. And you're like, great. Like, I wasn't going to say, did you lose muscle? Because, you know, you can only lose so much muscle at a time, et cetera. If it's extreme conditions, they could lose quite a bit. But let's say the muscle loss isn't even a bigger concern. I'm like, how do you feel? And they're like, I feel like shit. I'm going to die. And like, great, you're totally ready for another mesocycle. You did this completely well, right? That's ridiculous. So I think going to maintenance, 
maybe just a bit just uh, above or below uh, like Eric said you know based on situations I think it's good but I think you start to come up against a really big argument either way if you're super hyper hypercaloric during a deload you got a lot of explaining to do if you're super hypocaloric during a deload you have a lot of explaining awesome and uh, Menno if you got some comments uh, how are you structuring your nutrition over your deloads or well over your recovery days it depends uh, whether or when you do take the full deload yeah, I fully agree with um, Eric and Mike here. Uh, like for reactive deloads, I don't have any change in nutrition. I think it's far more important to have a meal plan and ma uh, maintain your dietary habits than to worry about day-to-day -day changes in energy expenditure that are really trivial. And I could go on a big rant about the Fitbit here, but I'll leave that for a different time. Yes, please, <laughs> no. And um, I mean, the difference in energy expenditure is really trivial of doing a few less sets or skipping one exercise. So I think it's not worth bothering with. And uh, like Mike said, in the event that I do structure longer days off, then I think you have some serious recovering to do, and then you're going to need that energy to actually recover well, probably. So I don't see any point in, uh, you know, if someone takes a whole week off, um, then it's probably, or if someone takes a week or more off in my kind of programs, then it's probably because uh, they have a serious injury or potential for a serious injury. And then maybe taper the calories down a little bit, you know, so I don't want them getting fat, but that's about the extent of it. Perfect. Not, oh, go for it, Mike. Sorry to interject. Mano, can you seriously please go on a Fitbit rant, man? I, people need to hear this shit, man. You don't know how many questions we get about this kind of stuff. My Fitbit says I burned 8 trillion calories yesterday. I had a pizza to accommodate. Seriously. You know what's crazy to me is it's 2018. Do you guys remember when the body bug came out? And every 24-hour oh, yeah. fitness trainer had those. That was like 2007. And the amount of accuracy between the body bug a decade ago and the Fitbit today hasn't improved at all. I, I don't understand. This is the same why. shit. I mean, what can you measure? Like, it's like heart rate and wrist movement. I mean, how, how accurate can it get? Yeah. Yeah. So really just yeah. a proxy for masturbation habits at this point. <laughs> Oh, you were on that arm. Man, I could have so many more calories. <laughs> right? You're like, I'm burning 8,000 calories. Turns out that the, the sheer ferocity and volume of your masturbation actually does burn 8,000 calories. And your coach is like, holy shit. He loses a lot more weight on the days in which he, you know, horn hub. No one? Anyone? <laughs> I personally don't engage in such illicit activities because I'm a moral individual. But you folks, oh, you Europeans and New Zealanders or whatever. And Steve, God knows what kind of freaky shit the English are into. But they feel guilty, though. That's the good no, side. Of course. Of English, or at least they feel guilty about it. So they self-deprecating. So sorry. Yeah. Is no, that what the M stands for in MRV? I just got it. Masturbation, <laughs> receptacle, vagina. Mm. We're looking for you. Were looking for a, a, where it's in, it's a, the term is in the works. We really we, we're going to be reaching out to our uh, colleagues in the Netherlands because they're experts of uh, of everything fetish. Um, <laughs> so. anything desecrate <laughs> <laughs> actually fine Can I, oh yeah super super quick story um this is greg knuckles story uh greg, greg was uh traveling to the conference um that, that some of us did in the netherlands and he's like you know he's going through customs and you know like the visa process is really annoying and shit so you don't want to say like oh i'm here for business because they're like where's your tax form and all shit so he's like fuck fuck what am i going to say like why am i here because i'm only a day in for a conference that's weird judges say i'm a tourist and the guy in line at customs right in front of him in the Netherlands, they're like, what's your, you know, what's your, what are you doing in the Netherlands? And he's like, I'm here to fuck hookers and do drugs. And they're like, welcome to the Netherlands. <laughs> Give him a passport. Greg's like, holy shit. He's like, I'm here for a conference. They're like, welcome to the Netherlands, whatever, man. I was like, wow, that guy is my fucking personal hero. The man who was on a mission and told people about it. And then he had to deload after that. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> Take home message, honesty pays off. <laughs> That's right. Well, guys, I do want to um, I don't want to hold you too long. I know we already were delayed coming on, and it's been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast uh for this kind of discussion more than anything. Um, which I think overall, whenever you see kind of these debates named debates they're very often discussions and that's the great thing about all of the, the individuals who I've had on the podcast and you guys have all been on who completely respect one another and uh, it just shows and i think that's fantastic and there is no kind of massive black and white controversies because 
that would be ridiculous because you're all uh, basing it off evidence and off your own experience. So no, thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully, and maybe um, depending on kind of your guys' schedules, we might be able to kind of have some further roundtables in future um, discussing various aspects of hypertrophy um, and kind of physique development and that sort of thing, because I think it's just so beneficial for people to hear you guys discuss it, because I think often the public can be kind of a bit confused and they think that it is black and white between everyone's like approach, but evidently it's not. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and uh, yeah, spending the time with me and one another. Thanks for having us. My man. pleasure, man. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, guys, and uh, we'll catch you all soon. And uh, make sure you share this podcast around because it, it needs to be seen. I think deloads are one of the areas at which people get very, very confused about. And it's really, in reality, like a lot of the things we've discussed here, it's not that confusing a topic. Um, so thank you guys for listening.